Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, an ominous figure watches an affluent suburban home from afar. He blames the wealthy residents of the neighbourhood for his chaotic life. The next day he comes back to the mansion to exact his revenge. Welcome to episode 23 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. On Wednesday, September 27, 2017, 56-year-old nanny Jennifer Fulford was due to arrive at a school in Winter Park, Florida, to pick up the little boy she was looking after. That afternoon, Jennifer's employer Reed Berman was contacted and informed by his son's school that the child had not been collected. Concerned as this was out of character for his nanny, Reed tried to call Jennifer's phone, but the calls went unanswered. Being unable to get in touch with his employee left Reed Berman highly concerned, so he left his job driving back to his home on East Webster Avenue. Jennifer's grey 2015 Hyundai SUV was not parked in the driveway as expected. When Reed called out inside the home, no one responded. He saw Jennifer's handbag in the bathroom. Reed looked inside, noting that both her phone and purse were not in the bag. This added yet another element of mystery to the whereabouts of Jennifer Fulford, and Reed Berman decided to call 911. Investigators were able to piece together Jennifer's last known movements quickly, thanks to surveillance cameras and phone records. CCTV footage confirmed that around 10.30am, 
she had attended a dental appointment at Canton Avenue in Winter Park. Jennifer's phone records indicated that she placed a call to a local art dealer shortly after and left a voicemail telling Janet Grimm that she was almost back at the Berman's home. Jennifer said a planned installation could go ahead as scheduled. Reed Berman had purchased art from Janet Grimm's business, which was to be delivered that day. At around 11.30am, a FedEx package from Bacon of the Month Club was delivered to the house. The driver had noted that the door was opened and closed in the FedEx records. Minutes later, Jennifer called Janet Grimm again. This time she sounded panicked and told Janet not to bring the art to the house as arranged because something had happened to Reed Berman's son at school. Jennifer told the local art dealer, I have to go get him. Don't come over. Inquiries at the young boys' school revealed that no one had contacted Jennifer that morning. Nothing had happened to the little boy. Jennifer Fulford was supposed to be visiting her newborn granddaughter in Dallas the following day with her husband, Robert. Robert posted his concerns on Facebook, writing, She would never disappear like this. Jennifer Fulford had been employed by the Berman family for six years prior to her disappearance. The married mother of two lived in Altamont Springs around seven miles from her employer's Winter Park home. Jennifer took care of the Berman's two children and worked as an assistant to Reed Berman, a real estate investor. Her best friend Adele Wigzinski said that Jennifer was the best nanny in the world. She had even been called Jenny Poppins. Jennifer was cheerful and was known to burst into song around the house. Her family described Jennifer as a loving and selfless woman who was very charismatic and exuded a kind energy. Jennifer's daughter Hannah Geist saw her mother as a best friend and said that Jennifer loved in a way that made you feel as though you were the only person on the planet. She would strike up a conversation with strangers in the grocery store, as if they were old acquaintances. If she saw someone who looked hungry, she could not pass by without buying them food. Her husband Robert later said, She often seemed to know what people needed, even if they did not. I will always love her. The Winter Park Police appealed, asking the public to look out for Jennifer Fulford or her missing vehicle. Jennifer was described as approximately five feet six inches tall with strawberry blonde hair. The police believed that her disappearance was suspicious. Hours after it was noticed that Jennifer was missing, her husband realised that $300 had been withdrawn from their joint bank account. Someone had used her bank card at an ATM. Not long after, there was a second attempt to withdraw cash, but it was declined. CCTV at the cash machine captured a person withdrawing money. It was not Jennifer Fulford. It was a man with noticeable cuts and scratches on his hands. A still image of the suspect was released to the media, 
and it was announced that Crimeline had offered a $5,000 reward for any information that could lead to the identity of the man seen in the footage. It did not take long for the individual to be identified. He was 53-year-old Scott Nelson. Nelson had a tumultuous upbringing in an abusive home. His father Lawrence was a violent man who would beat Nelson's mother Joan. Joan had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, as did her three sons. At the age of 13, Scott Nelson began to struggle with drug and alcohol dependence. His father left the family home, and the task of caring for their mother fell to Nelson and his two brothers. Nelson moved into a trailer where he became Joan's emotional support and primary caregiver. But he was not always around, since his criminal actions meant he spent much of his life in prison. He was sentenced to 14 years behind bars in 1994 after stealing a car and $10,000 from his father. His time on the inside was far from rehabilitative. It was marked with stints in isolation and alleged sexual assaults. In 2010, after being released from prison just 11 days earlier, Nelson entered Wachovia Bank on West International Speedway Boulevard in Daytona Beach, wearing a disguise. He told the teller at the counter that if they refused to give him all the money they had, the bomb he was carrying would, quote, light everything in this bank on fire. Scott Nelson was apprehended and ultimately pleaded guilty to attempted bank robbery. He was ordered to serve five years in prison before being released on federal probation. The police discovered that Nelson had predominantly been living a transient lifestyle. He slept at the Orlando Union Rescue Mission on occasion. Still, searches for him in the area turned up very little. Two days after Jennifer Fulford's disappearance, there was a significant development in the case. Her SUV was discovered parked at a public supermarket in Colonial Town, just east of downtown Orlando. Investigators searched the car and found a bottle of Blue Moon beer and a comforter. The bedding and alcohol was subsequently identified as property taken from the Berman's home. Inside the trunk, investigators discovered a blood-stained towel, a t-shirt and a watch. The watch and t-shirt were identified by the police as being worn by Scott Nelson when he was captured on camera using Jennifer's bank card at the ATM. The articles were sent to the forensic lab to be swabbed for DNA. A profile was obtained from the bloody towel and positively matched to Scott Nelson. An extensive search was conducted by multiple police agencies between the area where Jennifer Fulford was last seen and the location where her car was found. Officers went door-to-door and spoke to Jennifer's friends, neighbours and relatives. Canine units were called in to assist with the foot searches and police helicopters carried out aerial surveillance. 
as a police helicopter was hovering over a wooded area near Apopka Vineland Road in Orange County. They saw what appeared to be a body on the forest floor below. When this was reported to the search teams on the ground, officers made their way into the foliage to investigate. Around 20 miles from the public supermarket where Jennifer's car was found, investigators came across a woman's body in the brush. Her wrists and ankles had been bound, and her face was wrapped in duct tape. Close by lay a blood-stained knife. The body was taken to the medical examiner for an autopsy. The victim was positively identified as Jennifer Fulford. She had sustained two superficial knife wounds to her back and five penetrating stab wounds to her chest. It appeared Jennifer had suffocated. The duct tape had been wrapped around her face so tightly it restricted her airways and cut off the circulation. After the body was formally identified, Crimeline increased the reward fund to $20,000 for any information that would lead to the arrest of the man suspected of killing Jennifer Fulford, Scott Nelson. News of the tragic discovery swept throughout the area. Winter Park Police Lieutenant John Montgomery stated, Jennifer Lynn Fulford did not deserve this fate. She was a productive member of our community. Her husband Robert said, The man we suspect took her life. She probably would have done anything to help him out, just like she helped out other people. It's just so indescribable. She was just so full of life. Four days after Jennifer Fulford was reported missing, Scott Nelson was apprehended in Jacksonville. He had travelled from Winter Park on an Amtrak train and was recognised by a member of the public who reported the sighting to the police. Nelson had checked into the Sunshine Inn on New Kings Road in Jacksonville before he was arrested. He was charged with first-degree murder. Nelson was booked into the Duval County Jail and held without bond. It was understood he had no known connection to Jennifer Fulford. The following day, Nelson was released into the custody of the US Marshals Service and taken to a jail in Orlando. He had violated his federal probation. He was not eligible to post bail. Also, due to this, there was speculation that he would need to go through the federal system before facing the murder charge. Federal cases always take precedence over state cases unless attorneys file a motion to transfer that is then approved by a judge. Nelson was appointed a defence lawyer from the Federal Public's Defender's Office, but they were quickly removed. It was cited that a conflict of interest had arisen in relation to the two cases. While behind bars, Nelson penned a long and rambling letter professing his innocence to Judge Ann Conway from the Middle District of Florida. The ten-page letter began with the words, quote, Yo, bitch, it's me. Yo, boy, in the joint. 
The letter contained numerous racial epithets and referred to individuals as, quote, cross-eyed Mary and vomit back. Much of the letter was senseless ramblings, but Nelson tried to implicate others in the murder, one being someone he had lived with during the month of Jennifer Fulford's disappearance and another being someone known to Jennifer's employers. Nelson wrote, Could it have been a disgruntled friend of the real estate extraordinaire whom lost his nanny? Did the police ever find the note wedged in the tree? Not very observant. Scott Nelson concluded the letter by requesting special treatment while behind bars. He wrote that he would be willing to trade insider information. He requested his own cell and a job in the jail cafeteria, allowing him access to more food. Scott Nelson had requested a lawyer within the first ten minutes of his interview with the police. When he got back to his jail cell, he wrote to one of the investigators on the case and requested to speak with them again. Days earlier, he had professed his innocence, but now he wanted to make a full confession. Nelson told police that in the lead-up to the murder, he had been feeling good. While he was unemployed and broke, Nelson would later explain that he finally felt some self-respect after experiencing years of hardship because of the justice system. However, the day before Jennifer Fulford was killed, Nelson had gone to Winter Park and felt an injustice. Nelson said, I wasn't particularly happy with this. See, these people in Winter Park, they have everything by the balls. They have beautiful homes, beautiful cars and courses. I'm walking down the street while all these rich people are walking around buying jewellery and they're having their good life and all this stuff and wouldn't give a rat's ass about me. He came across the Berman's home and watched as Jennifer got out of the car with the Berman's young son. Well, the night before, I had been walking around the affluent neighborhoods and stuff, and I knew that I was going to make an example of... of... Um, of... I wanted to do a home invasion. Okay. So I knew that I was going to do that. Okay. okay. There's no question I was going to do that. Sure. And um, uh, I didn't, I'm sure you've read my criminal history. It's really bad, but... I knew I was going to do that, so I noticed this one house, and it was happened to be 5 o'clock, I'd say 5 o'clock in the afternoon uh, on the 26th, and I see Jennifer getting out of a vehicle with a young boy, and they go into the house, and I could tell just by the way she was dressed that she was not a... uh, uh, The first thing I just had in my head was she must be a house cleaner or or something of that nature. Okay, so I made the determination at that point that I was going to do a home invasion on that house. Okay. So, but I wasn't quite sure. But I wanted to make an example of Winter Park. Right. Okay. Right, right wrong, or different, be it evil, be whatever. That's what I was going to do. Okay. Um, I really, I, I really hate Winter Park. Right. I, I, yeah. I, I know. I know. I know. You guys been having a whole conversation. You know, on the way back, and say, you know, that son of a bitch, he probably just he's going to deserve everything he gets. But, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't. I, I, you, the, the dogs are number one. You never, never lose sight of one thing that, that um, 
Scott Nelson said he decided to return to Winter Park the next day. He approached the mansion owned by the Berman family, which he had cased the day before. Nelson watched as a FedEx driver delivered a package. The minute he drove away, I went up and I rang the doorbell and, I, um, and Jennifer answered and I said to her, uh, I said, you know, you have a package on the, um, on the doorstep here. Yeah, sure. And um, she says, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Um, and she was looking at me a little odd, like, yeah, I'm like, who are you? Why are you telling me this? And that's when I got to push the door and push it in. I went and shut the door and, um, and uh, she screamed. Okay. And um, she was, you know, frightened. Sure. And I, uh, uh, I had a knife. Okay. So, um, so I told her to lay down on the floor and then I, I bombed her with some um, zip ties. Okay. And um, she, she was, uh, I said, I said, I'm not gonna rape you, I'm not gonna hurt you, I'm just here for the money. Okay. And um, she was not very helpful with my needs. Okay. Okay. Uh, she wouldn't uh, give me any direction as to you know what was in the house. If there was anything in the house, um, I checked the alarm system. The alarm system was still you know not active. Okay. Okay. And um, I, I asked her a few pointed questions, and uh, she was not too cooperative. Sure. And uh, so I, I said, "Is there any money in the house?" She said, "There isn't." And I said, uh, "You know, I asked about the owner of the home." Scott Nelson admitted that Jennifer Fulford was a completely random target. He wrapped her in a comforter and then threw her in the trunk of her car before driving to the Wells Fargo ATM machine where he used her bank card to withdraw money. After leaving the ATM, Nelson told investigators that he planned on going back to the home to kidnap Jennifer's boss, but ultimately decided against the idea. From here, he drove Jennifer to the area where her body would later be found. When he went to the trunk, Jennifer pleaded for her life, but Nelson had already decided that he was going to kill her. I had chosen to bring her down that particular road because it seemed a lot like a wooded area to uh, to bring her. So I uh, got her out in the vehicle and she started getting louder and louder so I put some duct tape and then louder and louder so then, you know, uh, she's pleading for her life. Yeah, yeah. And um, things of such nature. So I duct taped her more and then uh, I had no, no intentions of killing her. Okay. Okay. But one thing went to another, and um, you know, uh, so I killed her. I exactly. I stabbed her three times that I remember. Okay. Do you remember where? Yeah, once in the back. Uh, another time in the back, and then the third time, I uh, I was walking away, and I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to let this bitch testify against me. Because they're going to give me the same amount of time. So I killed her. I put it one through her heart. Okay. And I put it into her heart, but close enough to her heart. And then it. Uh, the first time I stabbed her, I don't even know if she knows, realized she was stabbed. I, so I started duct taping her face more. And, and I said, I decided I'm going to kill her. So I just duct taped her whole fucking head. Yeah. And. Um, 
Um, nice to have her again in the back, but I know it must have went through her body. And that's when she started crying, like, oh no, no, she, she knew at that point she was going to die. After Scott Nelson duct taped Jennifer Fulford's face and stabbed her several times, he then climbed back into Jennifer's car. He drove it to the public's parking lot at Colonial Town. Nelson travelled in the direction of Winter Park train station and grabbed some pizza at a nearby 7-Eleven. According to Nelson, he was tired of seeing people who had more than he did and decided that he would target somebody in Winter Park simply because Winter Park was a more affluent area. People in Winter Park had nice homes, cars and money, and as Nelson said, he had nothing. Killing Jennifer Fulford, however, did not have the impact on Nelson that he anticipated it would. He told the investigators, After everything that's been going on, here I am back in Winter Park and nothing's changed. A girl is dead, and I still have complete contempt for Winter Park. It didn't make me feel any better. Nelson did tell officers that he enjoyed his pizza, though, and chillingly stated, I took my blood pizza because somebody died for me to get this fucking pizza. Little did they know what I had to do to get this freaking pizza. In early December, Scott Nelson appeared in court charged with first-degree murder, kidnapping, carjacking, burglary, robbery with a deadly weapon, and hindering communication with law enforcement. Nelson had a new defence lawyer by this point, Dan Eckhart, who requested a competency hearing scheduled for December 18th. There was much debate over whether Scott Nelson would be facing the death penalty if convicted of Jennifer Fulford's murder. State attorney Aramis Ayala had long been an opponent of capital punishment, refusing to pursue it in any case. Her stance led to an argument with Governor Rick Scott earlier in March, when she announced she would never seek the death penalty. As a result, Governor Scott had withdrawn 29 death penalty cases from her office. State Attorney Ayala attempted to sue Governor Scott as a result, but the Florida Supreme Court ruled in his favour. The state attorney was told that she could not issue a blanket refusal to seek capital punishment, and Governor Scott had the right to take away cases. She responded by introducing a panel of seven assistant state attorneys that would look at any future first-degree murder cases that might be eligible for the death penalty. State Attorney Ayala's review panel had recommended that Scott Nelson receive the harshest sentence, death. When the recommendation was submitted, it was only the third time in which the panel had announced that they wanted to seek the death penalty in a case. The first time was for Emerita Mapp, who had slashed the throats of two men in a motel. One of the victims died while the other survived. However, prosecutors missed the deadline to file their intent to seek the death penalty. The second time, the panel recommended a death sentence for Jimmy Gary Merritt, who had killed two men. 
State Attorney Ayla had been hit with much criticism due to her stance on capital punishment. Some lawmakers even suggested that the death penalty review panel she had established was simply a ruse. Speaking of the state attorney, State Representative Bob Cortez of Altamont Springs said in a news conference, My request has always been standing to the governor to remove her. The governor, for his own reasons, has not exercised that. Many people agree with me that she's derelict in her duty and should be removed, but it's not a decision for me to make. That's the governor's decision. Bob Cortez said that he did not believe that the state attorney would ever carry a death penalty case through to trial and highlighted the case of Emerita Map wherein they missed the deadline to file their intent. This meant that Map had been able to take a plea deal in exchange for life in prison. Scott Nelson was back in court just before Valentine's Day the following year. He sparred with US Magistrate Judge Carla Spaulding. She had ordered him to stop writing letters to judges. He refused, telling the court, If I feel like writing the judge, I will write the judge, no matter how you feel about it. Nelson went on to cite free speech laws which allowed him to write to whoever he wanted, including judges. However, Judge Spaulding informed him that he could be prosecuted for sending the correspondence, especially if the letters were threatening in tone. Judge Spaulding said that if that were the case, she would be instructing jail administrators and court officials to route Nelson's letters to his defence counsel Dan Eckhart so they could not reach a judge. Defence attorney Eckhart agreed with this decision, stating... He's somebody that has his opinions, and he thought he could exercise those through the First Amendment. But that's probably not proper. During the court hearing, it was also announced that Scott Nelson had been ruled competent to proceed in the federal bank robbery probation breach case. Two doctors had examined him and reached the determination. Federal prosecutor Kid Embry also announced that Nelson would likely be standing trial in state court first for Jennifer Fulford's murder. Nelson had not taken heed of what Judge Spaulding had told him and after the court hearing, composed another letter to a judge. Nelson wrote a five-page letter to Circuit Judge Keith White, which opened with, Your Honour, Sir. I come before you now humbly because I don't know where else to turn. In the letter, Nelson requested more food in jail, claiming that he had lost £40 since his arrest and complained that the penitentiary would not approve his request to be placed on a high-calorie diet. The correspondence read in part, Your Honour, I am facing the penalty of death. My whole life I've been abused. I've got no money, no family, no friends, and the government wants me dead. I suffer from mental illness. I am starving to death, and my insane defence team wants me to waive my right to a fast and speedy trial. No way. Scott Nelson admitted to a number of other robberies and claimed that he had committed other murders too. He wrote, 
have provided a full confession, gave up unsolved armed bank robberies, and promised to divulge eight homicides. I've never been caught for this. Following the letter, Nelson was ordered to return to court to speak with Judge White, whom he had sent the correspondence. Nelson said that he had requested his attorneys get him a copy of his records from the Federal Bureau of Prisons and also wanted the address of a religious leader. He did not name this person in court. Nelson explained that he had no problems with his defence team from the public defender's office but said he wanted them to be more forthcoming with his slew of requests. Judge White asked, Are you alleging that your attorneys are being ineffective in their representation of you, or not? Nelson replied, No, I don't think so at all. I just think they're coming up with excuses rather than solutions. Nelson did not want to waive his right to a speedy trial and asked to proceed as quickly as possible. However, since it was a death penalty case, his defence team had understandably wanted more time to prepare. One of his defence lawyers, Robert Wesley, said during the court hearing that Nelson was not a young man. He had 53 years of life experience that needed to be thoroughly investigated. In a death penalty case, the defence will examine the defendant's life and background to try and find factors that would convince a jury not to recommend a death sentence. The judge ultimately delayed Scott Nelson's murder trial after it was determined that Nelson was not competent to face the murder charge. The decision had come from a psychiatrist that was hired by the defence. Prosecutors requested a second opinion. And the following month, Nelson was back to writing more letters to Judge White. In this new correspondence, he requested that his counsel provide him with his brother's addresses, photographs of his former homes, pens, paper, a list of pen pals he could write to, a copy of his high school yearbook, and some documents associated with the case. Nelson again requested more food in jail. He wrote... I've been maliciously toyed with and abused psychologically by my defence. Just weeks later, in a further piece of correspondence, Nelson wrote another long-winded letter in which he requested new defence lawyers. He claimed that the psychiatrist they had hired, who determined that he was not competent to stand trial, was fraudulent. Nelson complained about them contacting his brother as a potential witness during the upcoming trial. In the seven-page letter, Nelson referred to defence attorney Robert Wesley as a very manipulative, deceitful, pathological liar. Nelson wrote, I experience immeasurable hardships in county jail. I want my trial immediately, or I implore a new defence team to bring me to trial or plea to the bench. Scott Nelson was ordered to undergo another psychological examination to determine competency. A hearing was scheduled for October 12th. However, when October rolled around, the competency hearing was postponed and rescheduled for the following April. At first, Nelson had refused to show up to court, 
but Judge White ordered him to appear. Two hours later, he was led into the courtroom and sat down beside his counsel. Nelson's defence team had a doctor testify that the defendant had suffered from multiple head injuries. Dr George Woods, a neuropsychiatrist, had evaluated Nelson and detailed how his early childhood had been plagued by head injuries that could have affected Nelson's brain function as an adult. The neuropsychiatrist told the judge, what we see in the neurological testing of Mr Nelson is a decline in his ability to use his brain effectively. You see a real decline in his cognition. Dr Woods testified that Nelson had bipolar disorder as well as disexecutive syndrome, a condition caused by head injuries that affect the brain. He described Nelson as being inflexible and paranoid, adding that he was worried that when Nelson goes to trial, the defendant could have an outburst because Nelson was not receiving proper medication. Dr Woods went on to talk about Nelson's intelligence, telling the judge that the defendant had problems passing tests that had more than one instruction to follow. The doctor also found evidence that Nelson's IQ had dropped from around 105 to the low 80s. Prosecutors had hired their own expert, Dr Greg Pritchard. He told the judge that Scott Nelson did not suffer from a mental illness and could understand and participate in the proceedings. Dr Pritchard asserted that Nelson appeared to be cooperative, verbally intelligent and asymptomatic during his evaluation. Speaking about Nelson's behaviour in court, Dr Pritchard said, Mr Nelson is acting in a very similar fashion as he acted when I did my evaluation. This diagnosis of bipolar disorder, that's a very serious condition. They can't sit calmly. They can't control it. Defence lawyer Chelsea Simmons went on to argue that her client would have a difficult time testifying during the trial and she questioned the prosecution's evaluation. She submitted that Dr Pritchard asked Nelson questions and the doctor simply took the answers at face value. Judge White ultimately ruled that Scott Nelson was competent to stand trial for Jennifer Fulford's murder. He concluded that Nelson's behaviour during the competency hearing suggested the defendant could act appropriately during a trial setting. Judge White also questioned Nelson about his earlier request to change defence attorneys. Nelson said that he was now pleased with his current counsel, stating, I have waited a very long time. I want my trial as soon as possible. I want my trial to begin. With the trial fast approaching, Scott Nelson's defence team tried to get his confession ruled as inadmissible. They argued that the investigators had coerced him into making incriminating statements by promising him better treatment in jail. While Nelson had initially refused to speak to investigators, he then changed his mind and wrote them a letter. It was addressed to Detective Brian Ferreira. In it, he offered to confess for, quote, better treatment in custody including a single cell with a bottom bunk 
and more food or a food server job. When Nelson did speak with investigators, Detective Ferreira had told him, I cannot promise you anything, but I can absolutely, absolutely bring your concerns and say this is what he's having a hard time with. I can absolutely do that. Judge White rejected the defence's argument. He told Nelson's counsel that he believed Nelson confessed simply because he wanted to tell his story, highlighting the fact that Nelson had refused to give investigators certain pieces of information during the interrogation. This meant that the confession was going to be used as a key piece of evidence in the murder trial. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Jury selection began in early June. And by June 23rd, they were seated and the trial was ready to start. Prosecutor Kelly Hicks would present her opening statement and described what officers found when they discovered Jennifer Fulford's body. Her ankles were bound together with duct tape. Her wrists were bound together behind her with a zip tie. When they turned her over to transport her into the medical examiner's office, they saw that she had duct tape wrapped around her entire head. It covered her face from her chin to her eyebrows. She would not have been able to see. More importantly, she would not have been able to breathe. She had two superficial stab wounds to her back, but she had five penetrating stab wounds to her chest, two of which directly pierced her heart. Prosecutor Hicks took the jury through some details of the case, telling them about Jennifer's mourning on September 27, 2017, and she ran errands. The prosecutor spoke about the phone call to Janet Grimm, the owner of a local art business, wherein Jennifer told her not to come over, that something had happened to the Berman's son at school. Prosecutor Hicks speculated that Jennifer was forced to make that phone call by Nelson. She said, Janet Grimm was the last person to hear Jennifer Fulford's voice. Prosecutor then pointed at Nelson and stated, The last person except, of course, for the man who put the duct tape over her eyes and mouth. The jury were told how DNA discovered on the items found in Jennifer's car and the knife at the crime scene had come back as a match to Scott Nelson. Prosecutor Hicks also revealed that surveillance footage pictured Nelson purchasing the same knife, duct tape 
zip ties and clothes around 11 days before the killing at a Walmart in Orlando. On the first day of the trial, several witnesses detailed the events leading up to Jennifer Fulford's disappearance, followed by CCTV footage showing Scott Nelson inside the public supermarket in Colonial Town, where Jennifer's car was found. Testimony was just getting started when Scott Nelson took to the witness stand. While his defence team had desperately attempted to get his confession thrown out as evidence, Nelson threw them a curveball when he once again confessed to murdering Jennifer Fulford, this time from the witness stand. When under questioning, Nelson blamed his probation officer and the federal government for Jennifer's murder. He stated that they had, quote, lit a firecracker, lit a bomb. Can you tell me who Julio Dominguez is? Julio Dominguez is employed by the U.S. Department of Justice, United States Probation Office in Orlando, Florida. And how is he related to this case? Well, well, sir, he was my probation officer. I was on supervised release. Okay, and what, what is it? the importance of his involvement in this case? Well, sir, I'll be very frank with you. Um, Jennifer Lynn Fulford would be alive today had it not been for Julio Dominguez. And the reason for that statement, sir? I think the uh, world should know that. I mean, it's justice. The truth should be known, sir. Scott Nelson accused his probation officer of costing him his job. The defendant went on to explain. I was employed in Winter Park for a painting company by a alleged Christian family who took it in their interest because I was such a dedicated, hard worker, allowed me to live at their employment as well. Prior to that, I had been homeless after being released from federal custody, thrown to the street, homeless with no money. I mean, that's how they do business. My federal supervised release officer... Julio Dominguez, after suffering on the streets of Orlando for many months with no identification, thanks to the Federal Bureau of Prisons throwing out my IDs. Let me interrupt you. Yes, ma'am. You said many months. We're talking about three or four months, right? Correct. Okay. And I was... What did Mr. Dominguez do to you? um, He made it a point to create a situation with my employer slash landlord, which is one of the same, And he got me thrown on the street after months of suffering on the streets of Orlando. So what he did was notify your employer that you were on federal probation. No, actually, um, Ms. Burdick, what he did was I satisfied the courts and the probation officer's criteria. I told them that I was in prison and I named the felony and they were happy with that the family, that satisfied the court. He took it upon himself to, as he called it, a third-party perspective. And he went to the owner and he used vulgar language and said, what are you, blank crazy for letting this man live here? And you're going to let him work here? Get him out of here. And that got me thrown on the street. Scott Nelson said his probation officer spoke with a family who had offered Nelson a job and a place to rest his head. In turn, they fired him from the job, telling Nelson he was not allowed to stay with them. 
Nelson was jobless and homeless and said he decided he would commit a home invasion for money. He even said that Jennifer Fulford would still be alive if it was not for his probation officer. Speaking about the government, Nelson told the jury that he had been failed and the authorities had turned him into an animal. My plan was to get some money and abscond. Abscond from your probation? Oh, I think anybody would after, I mean, I suffered to work my way up to the top of the mountain and this maniac comes and cuts it out from underneath me. I mean, what am I going to do? Go get another job? Let him do it again? No, we're going to fight back. All right. He lit a firecracker. He, he lit a bomb. He knew it too. And they laugh about it after. That's what corrections does. That's what the government does. That's all they've ever done to me. They've turned me into an animal. According to Scott Nelson, he was planning on shooting his probation officer but said that God had been looking out for him that day. So instead, Nelson decided to kill Jennifer Fulford. According to Nelson, she was, quote, collateral damage. So because of your... You don't know Reed Berman, right? Never met the man. And you don't know or didn't know Jennifer Fulford? No, I don't. There was nothing that either one of them ever did to you that would have resulted in you taking some sort of revenge on them for you know, some m- moral cause. I believe the term is uh, collateral damage. All right. Um, you're saying that Jennifer Fulford was collateral damage as a result of your disliking Mr. Dominguez and how he treated you. Well... I believe it's yes. more, yes, yes, but it's more accurate that he had a problem with me rather than I having a problem with him. Uh, and did you direct your concerns to Mr. Dominguez or his supervisor? Well, once I got thrown on the street um, with no job and stuff, there was really no sense in complaining to anyone. What are they going to do? So that's a no? Uh, that would be a no. All right, so instead of taking... Uh, a a normal course when you disagree with somebody, you decided on something completely different to make your point, if you will, right? Objection. I'll overrule the objection. Ma'am. Is that a yes or no? Instead of taking a normal route to deal with somebody that you disagree with on a professional level, you took another route to make your point. May I suggest yes and no answers in an in, in area that we, we're venturing is really like putting a gag in my mouth because there's a lot more to just a, a yes and a no. But I'll go, I'll go with the game here. Yes. All right. So you, you think this is all game? Well, I, I think what you're doing is man, trying to manipulate the, the real facts. Now, I'm trying to make a point that you... Now I'm willing to admit to it. Excuse me. Hey, hold, hold on. Madam Court Reporter cannot, cannot take down two people at once. So, Mr. Nelson, unless your attorney has an objection, you'd wait for my ruling, then you answer the question. Ms. Burdick, if you believe the witness is being non-responsive, you need to make that objection. Yes, Your Honor. All right. So, you're saying that I'm, I'm trying to now manipulate something... 
The point is, you had a problem with somebody completely unrelated to Jennifer Fulford and Reed Berman, and you made a plan in September of 2017 to take your anger toward that person out on somebody like Jennifer Fulford. I think that's accurate. Scott Nelson then went on to speak about the investigators who were working on the murder case, claiming that he allowed them to catch him. But as Nelson continued to testify, he gradually became more and more irate. He said that he was finished with testifying, and he was finished with answering any questions, and yet he continued. Nelson claimed his memory was getting foggy, and that he could not, in fact, recall stabbing Jennifer Fulford. He subsequently claimed he could not remember much from the day, citing earlier head injuries for the lapse in his memory. Nelson was questioned about the comforter he had wrapped Jennifer in before throwing her into the trunk of her car, but the defendant said he could not recall doing this. You didn't go into Reed Berman's bedroom and get the comforter off the bed so that you could put Jennifer Fulford in it so that you didn't have to drag her out of the house kicking and screaming? Reed Berman slept in that bed a couple nights and he didn't even know the comforter was missing. Maybe he took it. He, they didn't report it. take the comforter off of the bed so that you could wrap Jennifer Fulford in it because you wanted to conceal her from the outside. No. You didn't wrap her in the comforter? I didn't do that. Who did it? I don't know. I didn't do it. Maybe she did. Maybe she was cold. Say that last line again. I said maybe she was cold. I don't know. September 27th. How long have you lived in Florida? I don't know. She ended up cold. Scott Nelson went on to insist that his earlier confession to investigators was untrue. He said that he got enjoyment out of watching the investigators squirm. A, a lot of what I told those investigators, as, as the confession went on minute by minute, the more and more BS I would throw into it because they were giving me BS and I was giving it right back to them. That's how that interview went. And that's the truth. After withdrawing $300 from Jennifer Fulford's bank account, Nelson said that he drove around looking for somewhere to drop her off alive. The question is, you had this kit, if you will, of zip ties and duct tape and the knife, right? Yes. And as you were traveling, because it's a good, do you remember how long it took? That time of day? Check the, I don't know. Probably an hour? I don't know, check the cell towers. You were there. I don't know. You think it was an hour? I don't know. I'm not good at keeping track of time. All right. So you first go down a, an area closer to, you said you saw Disney signs, an area closer to them. Did you make a decision that this wouldn't be the right place to get rid of Mrs. Fulford? What do you mean by get rid of? Kill her? No. Drop her off? I had no intent. Duct tape and zip tie her? Miss Burdick, I really think you have this all wrong. I never intended to kill that woman. It was not in my heart to do that. It wasn't what, what I had planned. I didn't want to kill that woman. She'd never done anything to me. Right. So you drove her, though, all the way to Disney in the back of her vehicle 
for a purpose. Yes. It wasn't just for no reason, correct? Yeah, you're right. And you were searching for places to leave her. Yes. So then you find what you think, even though it's the middle of the day, is a relatively remote area, right? Yes. And you park the car on the dirt road? Yes. Pull into the field at all? No. Stayed on the dirt road? Yes. So you get out, and do you go to the back and open up the hatch? Yes. And she is in the back, wrapped in the comforter? I don't recall, ma'am. What do you say to her? Get out? I, ma'am, you're, you're, you're asking for specifics that I really, honestly, legitimately, truthfully, from my heart, I do not remember. I don't remember all those facts. Following Scott Nelson's disturbing and unexpected testimony, it was time for the closing arguments. Assistant State Attorney Linda Drain Burdick told the jury that it was the prosecution's case that Nelson had killed Jennifer Fulford so that she could not identify him as her kidnapper and then testify against him. Because there was some suggestion by Mr. Nelson that it wasn't his intent to kill Mrs. Fulford. I think he said, it wasn't in my heart, really. It wasn't in my heart to kill her. So what is killing with premeditation? It is killing after consciously deciding to do so and that the decision must be present in the mind at the time of the killing and the law does not fix the exact period of time that must pass between the formation of the premeditated intent to kill and the killing. The period of time must be long enough to allow reflection by the defendant. Can there be any question from the facts in this case that Mr. Nelson had more than enough time to reflect on what he was about to do? If not during the drive, once he got there. Once he wrapped her head so tightly that she couldn't breathe. Once he left her there in that condition and went back to get something to finish her off with. Premeditation can be formed in an instant. Mr. Nelson had an infinite amount of time to make that decision. Scott Nelson's defense team had suggested to the jury that their client be convicted of the lesser charge of second degree murder. Defense attorney Robert Lahr said, Fulford started to get loud he starts getting worried about her making enough noise of her being discovered. Prosecutors countered this, stating that there is no set time for premeditated intent to kill. Assistant State Attorney Hicks said, It is entirely irrelevant if he intended to kill her when he knocked on the front door. When he's stabbing her, there's not one stab wound. There is seven stab wounds. This is taking duct tape and wrapping it around and around and around her head so that she can't breathe. That takes time. At the time he is doing that, can there be any other intent other than he wanted her dead? 
the jury deliberated for just four hours before returning with their verdicts. Scott Nelson displayed no semblance of emotion. Madam Clerk, please publish the verdicts. 2017 CF 15684, State of Florida versus Scott Nelson. Verdict count one. We, the jury, find a defendant guilty of first degree murder with a weapon as charged in the indictment. Verdict count three. We, the jury, find a defendant guilty of kidnapping with intent to inflict bodily harm or terrorize with a weapon as charged in the indictment. Verdict as to count four, we the jury find the defendant guilty of carjacking with a deadly weapon as charged in the indictment. Verdict as to count five, we the jury find the defendant guilty of robbery with a deadly weapon as charged in the indictment. So said we all dated at Orlando, Orange County, Florida on this 28th day of June, 2019. Scott Edward Nelson was found guilty on all counts, including the first-degree murder of Jennifer Fulford. As the verdicts were read aloud, Jennifer's husband Robert and his family clung on to one another and wiped away tears. The murder trial then entered the sentencing phase. The prosecution was seeking the death penalty, while Nelson's defence team would be seeking a sentence of life in prison. Jennifer Fulford's family were given a chance to provide victim impact statements. Jennifer's husband Robert was the first to take the stand. He said that everybody knew how Jennifer had died, but he wanted to provide some information about how she had lived. He showed the courtroom some photographs from the life he and Jennifer had shared. Jennifer's son, Austin Geist, voiced his heartache. His mother was murdered on the same day that his daughter was born. Austin said, I know she is out there dancing and singing with a smile on her face and love in her heart. I promise you this, she is the one that will be remembered. Jennifer Fulford's loved ones spoke about their loss, with her daughter Hannah Geist lamenting that her mother would never see her turn 30, never dance at her wedding, and never be there for the birth of her future children. My mom was my best friend. I mean that in every sense of the phrase. We laughed hard. We talked to each other about everything. We held each other's secrets. We checked in on one another and everything we did felt like an adventure. We bickered, we cried on each other's shoulder, we taught me how to dance, and we danced all the time. She taught me how to sing, and we sang all the time. We were there for one another, and we loved each other more than we loved ourselves. Because that's who my mom was. She loved in a way that made you feel like you were the only human being on the planet, and that love was truly unconditional. Every Friday night growing up was girls' night. She would grab every pillow and blanket in the house and make the most comfy, ooja-booja palette for us to lay on. 
Bouja bouja was my mom's little phrase for everything incredible in this world. Good food, hugs, love, a good song, a fire in the backyard, the blooms on her plants, cuddling with the dogs, a fresh shirt from the dryer on a cold day. All of that be described with one phrase, Uja Bouja. Everyone who knew her used this word and they knew exactly what it meant and in the context in which to use it. I will never see the wrinkles on her face or curl her silver hair for her because her hands have aged. I will live the rest of my life without having my biggest supporter there to cheer me on and lift me up. To put a loss like this into words feels like a disservice to the absolute best human being I have ever known. It's a tragedy. It's foreign. It's a language that I don't know how to speak. It was never supposed to be this way. So I will hold on to the voicemails of her singing me songs like I just called to say I love you. I will keep calling her phone just to hear her voice message tell me, I hope you have a wonderful day. I will keep falling asleep every night, hoping that she's there in my The memories are many, and they are all I have left. The purpose of this testimony was to highlight aggravating factors that warranted the death penalty. Jennifer Fulford's murder had been especially heinous. The medical examiner who conducted the autopsy revealed the depravity of the killing when he said that it had taken Jennifer around five minutes to die. Scott Nelson's defence team cited a number of mitigating factors that they said should prevent him from being sentenced to death. They highlighted his troubled childhood and head injuries, explaining that he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder depression, bipolar disorder and claimed he was possibly on the autism spectrum. Defence attorney Chelsea Simmons said, None of this is being offered as an excuse. It's merely to show his mental state. Scott's life has been one of abandonment and isolation. Nelson's counsel called on psychologist Robert Wow, who had examined Nelson's brain. He had found a frontal lobe injury and suggested that Nelson was left with problems regarding executive reasoning. The doctor likened the defendant to a patient with Alzheimer's. The abuse that Scott Nelson had been exposed to was corroborated by his brother James, who said that their father would often call them derogatory names, make fun of them and hit them. You also mentioned that your father was physically abusive. Can you give me an example of how he was abusive to you? Well, it ranged from slapping and pushing to where um, I was hit with a two-by-four on more than one occasion. Um, He would throw things at you. Uh, He would get you into a corner and he would beat you with a belt and he would hit you with the buckle end of the belt. Um, I grew up hearing my uh, my mother would 
repeatedly be saying to my father when he was doing this, don't hit them in the head. My father just lost control and he just keep going and going, and apparently until he tired of doing it. Attempts to humanise Scott Nelson were made, with the jury told of the kind deeds he had done, such as selling his first car because his mother needed money. In addition to Nelson's turbulent upbringing, his defence team argued that he had a lifetime of substance abuse issues, imprisonment and mistreatment, all things they said should make jurors reconsider imposing a death sentence. Tim Gravett would testify next. When Nelson was in prison for robbing and attacking his father, Gravett had been an associate warden. He told the courtroom that Nelson spent most of his time in solitary confinement because he had made enemies or was in trouble for breaking the rules. Nelson was bullied because he cooperated with law enforcement and testified against a cellmate. The prison warden went on to say that Nelson could not keep his mouth shut and had somehow offended, quote, everyone but the Hispanics. The prosecutor asked Tim Gravett whether Scott Nelson had ever used racial slurs. As Gravett testified, Nelson had an outburst. Mr. Nelson, Mr. Nelson, you need to take a moment. Mr. Nelson, you need to take a moment with your attorneys. Hold on, sir. Sir. Members of the jury, Mr. Nelson, Mr. Nelson. Mr. Nelson, Mr. Nelson. Are we clear that you're going to stop talking? I need a verbal affirmative. Yes. Mr. Nelson, talk talk with your attorneys, and then your attorneys. We, I'm going to, Mr. Nelson. Mr. Nelson, Ms. Simmons has asked for a moment to talk with you privately. I'm going to grant her request, and you're going to have that opportunity. You need to follow the deputy's instructions so they can facilitate this. Okay, go ahead. Nelson had shouted, I'm not a racist and then demanded a mistrial despite the fact he had already been convicted of murder. He was ordered out of the courtroom, and upon his return 20 minutes later, Nelson apologised to the judge. It was presumed that he was going to plead for his life, but instead he did the opposite and requested that he be sentenced to death. Tell, tell me what the, what the issue is. The, the single issue is this, as I told the lawyers earlier today, as I, as I have told them for months and months, I want to get up there and I want the jury to understand. I want to go up there and testify to the uh, question as to what this 25 years in prison has done to me and what it's going to do to me in the future. What, I want to get up there and let them know what's, what, what is going to happen if I'm given life and no parole. From the stand, Nelson was asked about his mental health. How has your mental health been affected by your previous incarceration? I am a homicidal maniac. Judge, I don't have any other questions. Scott Nelson stated that while in prison, he had been beaten up repeatedly and raped by other cellmates, revealing that during one assault, he contracted hepatitis C. Well, it was... um... The end of October, and it went into the beginning of November of 2015, and I was at um, a medium security institution in Gilmore, West Virginia, 
federal prison, um, about a thousand inmates or more. And um, an inmate invited me into his cell, which is very common, share some food, different things, talk. And the next thing I know, I was coming to. An officer was waking me up. Um, I was beaten up uh, by my cellmate, which wasn't the person who invited me into the cell, but it's, I, it's kind of sketchy for me because I was unconscious. But I, I, was, I was raped. Um, this is, it wasn't the first time this has happened. It happened years before as well. Prisons are very violent. Did you um, ask for, at, at some later point, some sort of special testing or, or treatment because of the sexual assault? Yes, I asked for a blood testing, you know, for HIV and hepatitis C. And did you get that testing done? Yes, my entire life I had been negative for hepatitis C, but all of a sudden now I'm positive for hepatitis C. Nelson went on a rambling diatribe telling the courtroom he had been tied up by Santa Claus in federal prison and had been a slave following his release. He portrayed himself as a victim of the justice system. There's no fans, there's no air conditioning, and there's no heat. It's Kansas. It's very, very hot in the summertime there and very, very cold in the winter. And in the unit, there's pigeons, hundreds of pigeons flying around the unit. Of course, there's feces all over the windows. Uh, cockroaches everywhere, rats, I mean the size of hamsters. The, <clears throat> the cops brutalize the inmates on the regular. Um, I was up on the fifth tier, so there's no windows, there's nothing. It's 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. <clears throat> and um, the, 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 the treatment that you receive is brutal. You also indicated that there were, well, let me ask you this. There, were, there was a long period of time where you were kept in special housing or segregated housing units. Is that right? And um, you saw when Mr. Gravette showed us the diagram. Is that right? It's very accurate of the Florence, Colorado. Okay. And Florence, Colorado, U.S. Penitentiary. And that would have been one of the places that you were kept in segregation. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. And... Um, when you were in segregation, were there times where you were in the unit entirely alone? Yes. Were there times when you had one cellmate? Yes. Were there times when you had two cellmates? Yes. So there were times when there was a total of three people within the confines of what we saw in that diagram. Is that right? Absolutely, for months at a time. When you were in the segregated housing units at any of the various facilities you were at, did you ever witness a murder? Uh, several, yes. And um, did those happen, well, when you say several, can you give us a number? Is it one or two or? Three. I've witnessed three murders in years I've been incarcerated. I've been convicted of six felonies. I'm institutionalized. I've been treated like an animal for 25 years. And um, I've been brutalized. I've been had everything you, you can, there's nothing that you can dream up that hasn't been done to me in federal custody, nothing, everything. It was now time for the jury to decide Scott Nelson's fate. They could either sentence him to life in prison or death, but only a unanimous vote would send Nelson to death row. The jury denied Nelson his request and sentenced him to life in prison. All but one juror wanted to give him the death penalty. 
Nelson was led from the courtroom to begin his life sentence at Florida State Prison. Jennifer Fulford had lived a happy and fulfilling life that was cut short far too soon. On the other hand, Scott Edward Nelson had been the product of a turbulent childhood followed by long periods of incarceration. In 2017, he had been released from prison with a new outlook on the world, an outlook that would lead to the murder of an innocent woman. On that fateful morning, Jennifer Fulford had been carrying out her daily duties at her employer's mansion in Winter Park. She was completely oblivious that a man was lurking outside, a man who had been harbouring violent thoughts about those he believed looked down on him. The people who, in his mind, had it all, living their financially comfortable lives. In the end, Scott Nelson orchestrated his own downfall and found himself again behind bars, in the very place he had credited with turning him into a homicidal maniac. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. Script editing, additional writing, illustrations and production direction by Rosanna Fitton. Narration, narration editing and production direction by Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. Thank you for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.